And a welcome, hopefully, uh, for you uh, as we move through the course of a typical service. My heart is that you understand that the whole of what we do uh, is worship. And so we don't sing songs and that's worship and then we open the scriptures and that's something different. All of this, all of this, all of this is worship. Uh, and it's really just various forms of worship. <clears throat> and so with that, let us continue to worship. Let's open God's word here uh, this morning. Galatians 2. Uh, Galatians 2 is where we find ourselves. We're going to start in verse 15 and move through the end of chapter 2, verse 21. And uh, really, if you remember last week, Paul uh, had this, this long, protracted defense, both of himself and his apostleship, but more importantly, of the gospel itself. And this text this morning is, is not separate from that. It's really the culmination of his, uh, of his argument or his defense of the gospel. This is the, the climax or the crescendo. This is the culmination, not only of his argument, but really this is the epicenter of the book of Galatians itself. This is uh, the primary piece that Paul uh, is moving towards. And it centers around the gospel. In fact, let me, before we go any further, before we even read the text this morning, let me just begin by, by putting out this disclaimer, this warning to us here uh, this morning, because I think uh, hu human nature, right, we have this tendency that when we become familiar with things, when we hear things over and over and over again, when we see things over and over and over again, we, we tend to lose the awe and the wonder or the excitement or the delight that we once found in that An item or object or person, whatever it may be. Not the least of which is the gospel itself. And so, so no doubt as we move through this text, as we read these passages, uh, one gentleman this morning made the comment of Galatians 2.20. That was the very first verse I had ever memorized. Not a bad verse to memorize, by the way. But sometimes our familiarity leads us to this place of just kind of like, eh, ho-hum, whatever. And so there's very much this possibility that as we move through this text that you might find yourself saying something along the lines of, yeah, I know that. Heard that. Hundreds, maybe thousands of times before. So here's my disclaimer to us this morning. In the same vein that you've probably heard these truths and these words, maybe this specific text, uh, dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of times, if you've heard them over and over and over again, if you can hear these words, if you can read this text and not be utterly floored, not be uh, entirely amazed and not be undone with all that God has done for us. Listen very carefully to me. You have lost any sense of awe around the gospel. And the proper response to that is not to try harder or I'm going to pray differently. It's to beg of God that he would renew and refresh that, that sense of, of the glorious goodness, a profound, enormous truth that is found in the person of Jesus. That we would look at the greatness of God's work, the greatest news ever. And we would say, God, please, please, please. Don't let this become boring or mundane or, or, or rote for me. 
but that, that in our hearts that it would begin to rise within us. And so maybe some of you, you find yourself really, really down this morning and you need to be encouraged in the gospel. Maybe some of you are very, very apathetic or indifferent in your faith and you need to have that passion or that love restored for you in the gospel. Maybe some of you are living in this self-righteousness or this pride or this arrogance. You need to be humbled in the gospel. You need to be reminded that it's nothing in you. It's everything in Christ. All of us, all of us, all of us desperately need to hear this truth of what is unfolding in the text this morning. In fact, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, speaking of this very concept of our familiarity with the gospel, had this to say. He says, when you hear an immature and unripe saint trumpet that he knows very well that we must be saved by the grace of God without our own works, and then listen to what he says next. And then pretend that this is a snap for him. Then have no doubt that he has no idea what he's talking about and probably will never find out. For this is not an art that can be completely learned or of which anyone can boast that he is a master. It's an art that will always have us as pupils while it remains the master. And all those who do not understand and practice it do not boast that they can do everything. On the contrary, they sense it like a wonderful taste that they greatly desire and pursue. And they are amazed that they cannot grasp it or comprehend it as they would like. They hunger, thirst, and yearn for it more and more. And they never tire of hearing about it or dealing with it. God help us, God help us, God help us. That this would be our mindset, our attitude, our response to the fullness of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Galatians 2, verse 15, I'm going to read through verse 21. I'd encourage you to follow along. I'll tell you, why don't we stand up this morning. Let's honor of the reading of God's word. <clears throat> and let's all stand as God himself speaks to us here this morning. Uh, through the book of Galatians, he tells us this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. We're just going to have a seat, and uh, let's pray and ask God to have his way amongst us here this morning. Pray with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we thank you, God. We thank you for your immeasurable work in our lives. God, we thank you for the gospel. God, we thank you that we are justified in you and you alone. God, we thank you that it, it doesn't rise and fall with what uh, we have done, but it, is, it sits finished because of what you have completed. 
We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray that our hearts would be lifted, that we would see it anew or afresh. God, that you would renew our passion and our fervency around this truth and all the implications that it holds for us. But God, not only for us, God, we pray for other churches in our area, specifically this morning. We pray for uh, Pastor Abiel Diaz and Ciudad Gracia. God, we pray for that group of believers and for Abiel as he preaches. God, would you be working powerfully in and through of those people? Would you give them a great sense of your gospel? Would you give them a great sense of the work that you're doing and that you long to accomplish? God, would you be glorified in them in the same way that you would be glorified in us? Give us a great sense, a great taste, a great reality of the gospel. Would you stir within our hearts anew and afresh of a passion and a fervency around the gospel that's rooted in the goodness of what you have done on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Title of the message this morning is a single word title, which we almost never do, but um, I I think it's just fitting uh, for where we're at. Title of the message is Justified. And that word really speaks so much to our state and our condition uh, before the Lord if we're in Christ. And I think that the the main idea of where God's word is going to drive us this morning is to this truth here. It's that God justifies us by faith, not works. God justifies by faith and not works. Now, uh, my intent, my desire this morning, I don't want to really get too cute with the text. I want the simplicity of the gospel uh, to be really, really clear. And I want the profound reality of what Paul is unpacking to be unmistakably in front of us. And that we don't confuse it or we don't dilute it or or we don't allow anything else uh, to get in our way of understanding what it is that God is calling us to here. I'll also say this. There's a very real possibility that for many, most, maybe all of you in this room, I'm not going to say anything that you have not heard before. It's possible you won't learn one thing whatsoever this morning. And yet with a confidence that maybe I have in some ways that I don't have on other Sundays, I am resolutely convinced that every single one of us so desperately needs to be reminded of this truth. Because everything that you and I hold dear, everything that, 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 that uh, informs how we live is rooted around the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the implications that it carries for our life. So with that, two things, just two points, two things in the text, and really that's driven by the structure of the text, verse 15 and 16, uh, really describes the actual gospel, verses 17 through 21, speak to the nature or the substance of the gospel in our lives. And so let's just begin with this thought right here for verse 15 and 16. Uh, The first thing is this, God justifies through faith alone in Jesus. We're sorry, in faith in Jesus alone. God justifies through faith in Jesus alone. I mean, that's the gospel right there. That's the good news of Jesus, that he justifies us through Christ. And here in verses 15 and 16, Paul begins to describe the actual gospel. Look at what he says. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And then not once, not twice, uh, three times, we see the word justified showing up. Now we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
Let's talk about that word justified for a moment. I mean, it's obviously a big deal since Paul keeps mentioning. In fact, in verse 17, uh, he's going to say it again. And then in verse uh, uh, 19 or 20, somewhere there, he starts, or sorry, verse 21, he starts talking about justification. So in this short passage, five times, Paul is referencing this word. The word literally means to be rendered righteous. It's to be rendered righteous. Wayne Grudem in his uh, book, Systematic Theology, gives a fuller definition of uh, biblical justification. He says this, Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Let's just talk about a couple of implications there for a moment. A lot lot of really prominent things there that I want to make sure we're clear about. First of all, with respect to justification, it's a legal declaration from God with respect to our standing. This is a formal ruling from the judge. And specifically, what the ultimate judge is declaring is that you and I are righteous. What? I mean, you, you might be like, uh... Is he blind? Right, not not, not in, in, in an irreverent manner, but is, is he blind? Can he not see? How could God possibly declare that I'm righteous? Because if you're like me, you know all too well that you're anything but righteous in and of yourself. Right? He's declaring that we're righteous. Well, how can he do that? Well, because God recognizes that our sins are forgiven. See, he declares us to be just. He declares us to be righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done, that that, that Christ has cleansed us from our sin. And our sins are forgiven in him. And so one aspect of that is that uh, we're over here. uh, Let's call this uh, morally negative, morally bad, morally wrong. And Christ's cleansing work of us removes from us our sin and moves us to a, uh, let's call it a morally neutral position. But he does not stop there in terms of justification. Not only does God cleanse us of our sin, and not only does he declare us to be just, but the other thing that God does is he actually puts the righteousness of Christ upon us. And so where we started over here in morally uh, wrong, bad, wicked, evil, whatever, he cleanses us of that sin and moves us to uh, moral neutrality, but then he also, the theological word is he imputes, he places upon us Christ's righteousness. This is insane. That God would take people who are morally wicked, wrong, vile. He cleanses, not only does he cleanse us of our sin, but then he's going to stick the righteousness of Christ upon us so that when God looks at us, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's mind-boggling. Think about that. Like right now, right now. When God looks at you, if you are in Jesus Christ, he does not see your failure. He does not see your sin. He does not see your wickedness. He does not see your rebellion. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Amen to that. How freeing is that? How life-giving is that? That is what is happening in biblical justification. And so in the same way that Adam's sin, right, when Adam sinned and it was passed on to all of humanity, now in Christ's righteousness and in his death in our place, His righteousness is now put upon us. God justifies. God justifies through Jesus Christ alone. 
And so you think about this legal declaration from the righteous judge. One of the things we understand in the judicial system is once you are declared innocent, from all points forward with respect to that, you're declared innocent. And so when Jesus says, or when God says, you are declared innocent, you are declared just, that no one, Satan, yourself, no one else, has any right, any claim to hold any of that stuff. It's like the judge has freed me. I am declared righteous in his sight and I carry the righteousness of Jesus with us. That is incredible. And so let's just begin to see specifically God justifies through faith alone in Jesus. Let's press this a little bit further. Look at verse 15 and 16. Two things in these verses with respect to God justifying through faith in Jesus alone. Here's the first. Now, sometimes the best way to answer or to know what we are is to first figure out what we aren't or what something isn't. We are not justified by works. We are not justified by works. I mean, not once, not twice, but three times in verse 16, Paul makes this point known. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Um, uh, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times, three times in a single verse, he tells us we are not justified by the works of the law. You think he's trying to drive home a point here? He's like, pay attention, knuckleheads. Are you not getting this? Because the reality was in the Galatian church, they were knuckleheads and they weren't getting it. That's why he has to keep saying it. And then even look at verse 15. Go back to verse 15. I think not only in verse 16, but I think we see this in verse 15 as well. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You know, he's, he's appealing to, to their position in Abraham. They, hey, we're God's chosen people. We're Jews by birth. This is the same thing that the religious leaders were saying to Jesus and John 8. We're, we're the seed of Abraham. Like if anyone, if anyone can lay claim to some kind of favored status or prominent position between themselves and God, which by the way, you can't, but if anyone could, it would be these guys. That's the appeal that Paul is making. But really what he's actually getting at is there's nothing special in and of themselves, right? By application, there's no position, no prominence, no status that puts us into special favor or a favored position with God. You can't work for it, or you, you can't work for it, earn it, try harder, do more. You, you cannot earn, you cannot be justified by works. And Paul actually fleshes this out. Turn, turn in your Bible to the book of Philippians real quick. I want you to see this. So just a couple pages to the right. Galatians and then Ephesians, Philippians. And if you get to Philippians 3, Paul actually unpacks this truth uh, in detail. And so here he's talking about finding our righteousness through the person of Jesus. And starting in verse 3 of chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul says this, for we are the real circumcision, which is a play on this whole idea of, of Jewish people and their favored position. And Paul's saying, listen, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that you're God's people. What makes you a part of God's people is that you are faithful to the covenant promises. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And look at what he says. And put no confidence in the flesh. And then I love his argumentation here. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Okay, point, point A. Put no confidence in the flesh. Point A1. If anyone has reason to have confidence in the flesh, it's me. And then look at what he goes on to say. I, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
He's like, listen, in short, I'm a better Jew than all of you. That's what he's telling them. No one does this Jewish thing better than me. And then he begins to tell them about it. In verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of, uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the, of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. He's like, Point by point, this is why I'm just better than you at this. And his argument is, if anyone can have confidence, it's me. Here's why I can have confidence. And now look at what he says next. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's like, I'll happily throw away all of that stuff if that means that I gain Christ. But look at what he says next. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's making the same argument that he's making to the people in, in the Galatian church. You're not justified by your works. He's like, if anyone could be justified by their works, it would be me. I don't even have a shot. And so for the rest of you, you're totally hopeless. That's essentially his argument in Philippians. We're not justified by works. Your works won't save you. Truthfully, if we're being honest, if anything, your works are a mockery to God. Because what they say to God is that either A, you can do it better, or B, God, what you did was insufficient, but let me help you out and finish it. That might be the most arrogant, proud position imaginable to think that we could somehow justify ourselves. We are not justified by works. But in contrast to that, we're justified by faith. I mean, it's pretty clear. I mean, he... he, he toggles back and forth between that contrast repeatedly in verse 16. We're not justified by works, we're justified by faith. And let me just make a clear distinction as he's speaking about these things that when we say we're justified by faith, please, please, please do not slip over into this mindset that justified by faith is, well, I'm justified by what God is doing, but I kind of help or what I do, uh, it, it moves the needle further. Or, or, yeah, God has to justify me, but I also have to do some things. That, that, that's not biblical thinking. Right? We just said no work saves you. So there's nothing that you could do that would save you. Scripture never even hints at justification being tied to our goodness or our volume or the depth of our faith. It is tied solely and singularly to the work of Jesus. And so maybe a way that might be helpful to think about this is when we think of being justified by faith as a sole or singular work of God in salvation, that we would think of it this way, that faith is simply the instrument, it's simply the channel, it's the means by which justification flows through. Outside of the, these guitars, play. Right? They, they don't do anything on their own. They, if, if we left that guitar, it would never make another noise ever again. It only makes noise when put in the hands of a musician. In the same way that, that justification, right? this is the instrument that moves it forward. Faith is the instrument that moves justification forward. In and of itself, 
it has no power, but rooted in the person of Christ, it's an entirely different ballgame. We're justified by faith. Now, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, I've already said this, right? This is nothing new. Probably most, if not all of you, could have said everything that I've said so far. Like, we've heard this over and over and over again. This is not a new truth. Uh, that This is not some mysterious thing that we're unsure of. This is not uh, something that's hard for us. I think intellectually, every single one of us, every single one of us, we go, well, of course we're justified, justified by faith and not by works. Everyone knows that. Great. You have it here. What I'm curious about is do we have it here? Do I know in my heart of hearts that truth. More importantly, do I believe it to the point that it's actually reflected in my life, that I truly understand the gospel and its implications? And so not simply that I can intellectually assent to the reality that I'm justified by faith, not by my works. I'm wondering in our heart of hearts, do I know it there as well? So here's just a few questions that... <clears throat> You get to wrestle through between yourself uh, and the Lord with respect to, do I really truly understand the gospel? Do I really have it in my heart? Has God really allowed it to sink into who I am? So ask yourself this question. Do I think? Do I speak? Do I behave? Do I act upon my goodness or upon Christ's goodness? Like what, what, what is it that I appeal to? What drives me to do what I, what I do? What is my hope at the end of the day? Is it the goodness of what Christ has done in my place or is it something good that I have done? Second question. Am I aware of my dependency upon Jesus or is my tendency to think that I can do it myself? Am I self-sufficient or am I God-sufficient? That one's honestly quite revealing and usually shows up in, in one of a number of forms of things like this. Third question, do I find myself thinking, God will love me more if blank. I am better because I blank. God likes me since I blank or any other similar question that ultimately betrays a heart of trying to earn God's favor. Now, those questions might sting a little bit because it's really getting at the lack of the gospel in my life. Fourth question, do I find great freedom and satisfaction in God or do I find him to be controlling? See, if God is controlling, if God is not satisfying, if I do not find delight in him, then what I see him as is some, anywhere from a ruler to a dictator and I've lost any sense of the gospel and its impact and influence in our life. See, the reality of the gospel is there's incredible freedom in being justified by faith. And the mistake, part of our mistake is thinking that in this justification that Jesus frees me to do whatever I want. That, that's not at all what he's saying. In fact, a good portion of the second half of the book of Galatians centers around that. But we also don't want to waste this freedom and this, this apathy or in this indifference around the glorious gospel and all that it entails for us. We're justified through faith in Jesus. There's incredible freedom in that. Now notice the second half of the text. 
Verse 17 through 21, now really getting at the the substance or the nature of the gospel, how this intersects with our life, what this means for you and I, what are the implications of, of how this plays out in my life. So I wrote this down for verses 17 through 21. God's justification calls us to die to self and to live to Christ. God's justification calls us to die to self and to live to Christ. Notice where he starts in verse 17 and 18. But if, right, okay, here's an if question. In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Essentially what Paul is saying is, hey, look, if I'm seeking to be justified in the person of Jesus, does that that mean Christ is complicit? Well, of course not. But it also proves that if in seeking to be justified in Christ, it proves that I recognize that I'm wrong and I need to be justified. Otherwise, I wouldn't seek justification in him. And then he gives another example in verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. See, what we see in verse 17 and 18 is that our insufficiency is revealed in justification. Your insufficiency, my insufficiency is revealed in God's justification of us. Right, Paul proves the need of it. Right, hey, if we're looking to be justified in Christ, it proves that I recognize my need for justification. If I have to rebuild something that I tore down, it proves that I was wrong when I tore it down. Here's what I think is really, really crucial for us to understand as believers. It's to be able to recognize in our life, it's to be able to identify in our life our insufficiency. I think too often as believers, as we think about the gospel, as we share the gospel, as we attempt to live in the gospel, what, what, what happens is um, we'll talk a lot about God's love. We want to talk about how God is loving and God is great and he's kind. And that's not wrong to talk about God's love, but oftentimes we'll do that at the expense of talking about our insufficiency, about our failures and our sin. And I think in the process, what we do is we actually shortchange God's love in failing to talk about our sin, in failing to talk about our insufficiencies. Here's what I mean by that. When you take a look at God's love and his unconditional love, his faithfulness in the midst of our failure, his willingness to bear with us in all things, and you contrast that to our failure, God's love is actually glorified and magnified in that. It gets bigger and broader. It it becomes more grand in in recognizing what God is doing on our behalf. Further, it's important for us, it's necessary for us to see our true state, to even understand God's justifying work in our life, but it actually helps us ultimately to qualify God's love. When I see God's love in light of my sin, I am more uh, able to see the fullness of what God's love is actually doing for me. When I want to strip away that reality, you, you, you totally undermine the reality of God's love and, and, and the poignancy and the power in it. They always oh, just a good guy and he loves me. Why does he love you? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm a good person. The reality is, is he loves us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our wickedness, in, in spite of our rebellion of him. Further, I would suggest to you that our, insufficient, our insufficiency is actually a gift. You might be like, you've lost your mind. What is wrong with you? No, I think, I think it's a gift for us. Because listen, when, when I can uh, identify and understand uh, the, in, the insufficiency in my life and I begin to own that, 
I quit fighting to earn it. I quit fighting to prove it. I quit fighting to demonstrate to God why I'm worthy of his merit and favor. It's incredibly freeing. Because when I begin to lean into my, my insufficiency, I begin to be honest about myself. I begin, to be, I begin to be honest about my shortcomings. I begin to be honest about my need of God. I begin to be honest about the fact that I can't do it on my own. And, and then as I recognize my honesty between myself and the Lord, I then begin to be transparent with others. It's like, well, man, I, it's pretty obvious I can't do it here. And I begin to be transparent with others. And we quit playing spiritual games and we quit uh, wearing spiritual masks and we quit showing up for church pretending like we got it all together and our, our life's great and we never struggle with anything and we don't wrestle with doubt or we're not I'm just agonizing over something in our life. But it's like, man, I'm just in the middle of a really difficult season because I quit playing these games. And after that, we start to become men and women of humility because I'm honest about the fact that I can't do it on my own and I desperately need a savior. I, I, I'm realistic about um, the, the fact that, that I'm broken just like everybody else. And so when I see someone else who's struggling with something, when I see someone else, who maybe they're struggling with something that I've never struggled with, we don't look at them in this proud state of like, oh, what is wrong with you? We look at them in this sense of, man, I know exactly where you're at. Maybe I haven't struggled with that thing, but I know what it is to struggle. I know what it is to have doubt. I know what it is to feel like I'm just losing to sin constantly. I know what it is to see, right, there's humility in that. And we start tr treating people the way that Jesus treats people because we can see them through this lens of humility, not this sense of superiority that I've got everything figured out. Our insufficiency is revealed in justification. Loved one, ask yourself this, quest this question. Have you come to grips with your insufficiency? Have you come to grips with your insufficiency? Can you see or identify your need in your life? And then what are you going to do about it? I mean, what are you going to do about it? Right, trying harder is, is the worst answer possible. Where you begin to lean into that and more importantly begin to lean into the sufficiency of Jesus our insufficiency is revealed in justification. Notice this secondly in verse 19. Look at what Paul says. He says, For through the law I've died to the law so that I might live to God. And then he goes on and he says this in verse 20 and following. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, let me give you the final two points here uh, in tandem because I want us to be able to hold them in tension or in contrast the way that Paul does. Verse 19, we see our death to the law. Verse 20 and 21, we see our life uh, in Christ. Our death to the law, our life in Christ. And, and Paul holding them in this tension, right? Coming to the culmination or, or, or the crescendo of his argument. And he's, he's saying to the Jews in, in the Galatian church, he's like, man, you have been living to the law. You've been living under the law. But, but you, you can't do that and you keep, while simultaneously living to Christ. It, it, they're incompatible. It has to be one or the other. It can't be both. 
And that's the bottom line for you and I. You and I can live to the law. We can live to moralism and works and duty and obligation. Or we can live to the fullness of the gospel. But you cannot live to both. They are incompatible with one another. Now, I, I, I'm guessing that most, if not all of us, are like, oh yeah, in our mind, I, I'm for the gospel. I'm for the gospel. Right? No, I, I don't know, maybe someone's sitting here being like, man, I'm, I'm going to live to the law. I'm all about those sacrifices and offerings. Let's burn some animals. Torah, baby. Like, come on. That's what I want. I don't think any of us are thinking that. I could be wrong. I hope I'm not wrong. But maybe, just maybe, that's what's going on in our heads. But here's the point. Again, it's one thing to think it. It's one thing to say it. But in the reality of my life, is it true? On a Tuesday morning, on a Thursday afternoon, on a Saturday night, it's one thing to sit in church and talk about this, but, but what about the rest of your week? Is the gospel equally congruent on Sunday morning as it is in all other points and parts of your life? Or, or is there this disconnect? And so let, let me just help maybe to, to uh, let, let's, Dwayne, can you put that, that grid up for us? And so I, I want to just walk through, I don't know how well you can see that, uh, if that's visible or not, but let me just walk through this here for a moment, this tension between the gospel and the law. And, and you just ask yourself, yeah, which of these are true of me? Because in the gospel, uh, you and I say, I'm broken and Jesus fixes me. In the law, you and I say, I'm broken, but all fix me. In the gospel, we say, I need a savior. In the law, we say, I am my savior. In the gospel, we seek the approval of God. Under the law, we're seeking the approval of man. In the gospel, I'm saying, I am indebted to God. Under the law, I mean, this is insane, right? But we say God is indebted to me because of what I've done. God owes me. In the gospel, we say I have been justified, right? Past tense, finished, done. In the law, we continually have to say I must justify myself. In the gospel, we serve out of this place of love and gratitude and obedience and desire and thankfulness. In the law, I serve out of duty and ritual and obligation. In the gospel, I recognize that I am loved unconditionally. In the law, I see that I am loved in proportion to what I have done. In the gospel, I am dead to myself. And hear me, hear me when I say this last one. In the law, I am dead to Christ. You can die to the law and live with Jesus. Or you can be dead to Jesus and live to the law. You cannot do both. And the thinking in this, in walking through this, and just this start conscious, because the reality is, let, let's just be honest, the reality is far too many of us, we live moralistic Christian lives. And we think far too often that I'm going to fix myself and I'm going to make God love me and, and, and I'm going to justify myself and I'm going to do these things that God is thinking are so great and wonderful and he's going to love me because of, and that is just incongruent with the reality of the gospel. Now, sanctification, as it's working out, looking more and more like Jesus, yes, that bears fruit in our life, but the gospel, my standing before God, is determined by the finished work of Jesus alone. So we don't talk about this to crush you. I say this to help you recognize that that's exactly what the law will do. It will crush you. It will crush us in attempting to perform in a way that we earn or merit God's favor. In dying to the law, 
Here's what it is. When we die to the law, we die, die to a life that at its core is conditioned. It's conditioned that God's love and approval is based on my behavior and my merit and my performance. We're dying to that and we're embracing a life that says, I am justified solely by the finished work of Jesus and I live in the fullness of that. Again, nothing that probably any of us haven't heard a hundred times and yet how often do we live in the law not in the gospel? Our death to the law. And finally in verse 21 or 20 and 21, our life in Christ. Right? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Right? Our life in Christ. Notice a few things about this. First of all, I've died with Christ. I've died with Christ. He talks about being crucified. He talks about no longer living. I think as believers, this is one of the hardest aspects for us to do, is actually to die to ourselves. I think that's part of the reason why we want to cling to the law. We want to have some say, some stake, some part of like, no, look at what I've done for you, God. And yet littered throughout the scriptures is this reality of dying to ourselves. Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. He's like, die to yourself. That's literally what he's saying. Paul in Romans 6 talks about being dead to ourself. In Ephesians and Colossians, he talks about, I'm dying to our former self. What is it that I'm dying to? I'm dying to the weight of sin, to the burden of sin. And I'm dying from, from the obligation or the duty that I somehow have to earn or merit God's favor. That, that, that I have to constantly seek his approval. That I have to live under the crushing weight of wondering whether or not it's enough who in the right mind wants to live to that? I don't want to live in that. I don't want to live for that. And yet far too often as believers, it's exactly what we do is we live in that. We think that we have to earn it or prove it or try harder and harder and harder again. Let me, let me try to illustrate this here for a moment. What, what far too many of our Christian lives look like. So I've got a backpack over here and I put a bunch of rocks in it. And uh, so I don't know, probably 60, 70 pounds here. And as believers, this is what we do, right? Is, is we want to saddle up under the works of the law. And it's like, oh, I'm going to carry this. I'm going to carry this. And then every time you come to a point in your life where it's like, no, I'm going to earn it or I'm going to try harder or I'm going to do more. Go ahead, Stefan. See, what we do is it's like, hey, let's just pack it on. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Right? And it's like, you know, I, hey, I can carry this. I can shoulder up under this. I can do this. And for a few minutes or maybe even for a couple days, maybe even for a few weeks, you can do it. But right, inevitably, usually multiple times a day, we come to these points in the road where we have these decisions that, that we, we're going to choose to live to the law. We're going to live to the gospel. Go ahead, put that in. I'm hating this illustration right now. <laughs> right? And it gets heavier and heavier. And what's going to happen after a little while? I'm going to be crushed by this. Now, here's what far too many believers do. We walk around with this huge monkey pack of rocks on our back, right? And all the burdens. And we're thinking to ourselves, man, Jesus is so impressed with me. He loves how righteous I am. He just loves this. And you know what I think Jesus would say if he saw us like this? That might be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's what I died for. We choose to live for this when Christ is saying, let me come carry that. Why would we keep going? No, no, here, let me get that for you, Jesus. You can't carry it. You can't. And yet, time and time again, this is what we do. 
we fail, we sin, we think, and we go, no, no. And what the gospel says, what justification says, is you could never actually carry that. And that's okay. Because Jesus has already covered that. This right here is not what it is to live for Christ. The beauty of the gospel is we get to go, I'm done with that. I'm free from that. I'm liberated from that. And yet how many of us on Monday afternoon or Tuesday morning or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, we're going to run right back to that thing and go, no, no, let me saddle up under that again. We might know the gospel here, but every time you go pick up that stupid backpack, you have lost it here. You've lost what Christ has done for us, that he's freed us from that. This is what it is to drop that. And by the way, trust me, you don't want to pick that up. It's heavy, okay? And to say, Jesus, only you can carry that. I've died with Christ. We lay that down. Here's the trade-off. Is that Christ lives in me. That's what happens in the gospel next. Is I get to dump that and the second member of the Trinity, right? Christ himself lives in me. I mean, that's what Paul says. Christ who lives in me. That's what he's telling us. Christ in me. And so in one aspect, right, ruling and in control of our life, but in another aspect that, that the work of Christ in my life is replacing this dead works to, to law and duty and obligation. Our life in Christ, I've died with Christ. Christ lives in me. Thirdly, uh, I live by faith. I live by faith. Can we be honest? Living by faith sometimes is scary. Sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes it pushes us in, in different ways. But notice what Paul says. Uh, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Okay, faith in who? Faith in the Son of God. Tell me about the Son of God. Well, he's the one who loved you and gave himself for you. See, to live in faith of one another, to live in faith of the government, uh, to live in the faith in any, in, in any other entity is a terrifying thought. To live in faith in the Son of God, that's, that's not such a stretch because that's the one who loved us and has given himself for us. That's a radically different ask with respect to faith and all other entities. And then Paul finishes with this. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, we don't nullify grace. We don't attempt to cheapen God's work. We, we don't undermine the cross by attempting to work for it. Every time we say, no, let me get that, what we, in effect, are telling Jesus is, your work was insufficient. Let me help you out. We have no sense of the gospel in that. Instead, what we need to say is, Jesus, thank you that you've covered it all. Thank you that you've redeemed. Thank you that you've reconciled. Thank you that you've restored, that you've forgiven, that you've healed, that you've paid the price. And I'll never have to pick that up. Because you freed me. God justifies by faith in Jesus alone. God's justification calls us to die to self and to live to Christ. It's a simple truth. It's an easy truth. It's a massively profound truth. And it has implications at every last step uh, of our journey uh, to, the other, to the other side of eternity. That we are, de we are justified by faith. We're declared righteous by God. That our sins are forgiven. That the, the righteousness of Christ is placed upon us. Loved ones, that's what it is. That's what it is to live in the biblical gospel. That's what it is to live in justification. 
recognizing that there's nothing, nothing, nothing that you could do to earn or merit God's favor. And that's okay because Christ has already accomplished it on our behalf. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that your atoning work uh, is more than sufficient. God, we thank you that, that we are free in you, that we are released from the bondage of sin, the burden of sin, the weight of sin by your work on our behalf. God, I pray we'd live in that. Forgive us for the ways that we return to moralism. Forgive us for the ways that we think that we're gonna somehow be sufficient in and of ourselves. Forgive us for the ways that we would ever think that your work on our behalf lacks or, or needs help or is insufficient. God, help us. God, help us to not simply know the gospel in our head, but to own and embrace the gospel in our heart and for it to permeate how we see everything, for it to permeate how we live our lives, for, 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 for it to color all that we are and all that we do. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen.